Thanks for tuning in to another Matter Loading Session. I'm Nina. I'm Kyle. This week, we're updating you on Afghanistan's refugee crisis, how Joe Biden wants to quote-unquote reset the United States' relation with Israel, the formerly pharmaceutical scandal, DepEd's plans for reopening schools, how Texas successfully rebanned abortion, and the recall elections happening in California, plus what that means for women's rights. But first, let's talk about Theranos, a healthcare startup. Elizabeth Holmes, the founder of the healthcare startup Theranos, is on trial for fraud, and proceedings began this week. To give context, Theranos' pitch was that it could be a catch-all diagnosing tools for anything from diabetes to syphilis to even narcotics just by testing blood samples. It was founded in 2003, and the company reached its highest valuation in 2013, up to 10 billion USD, with many high-profile investors like Rupert Murdoch and Betsy DeVos. In 2015, whistleblowers in an investigative piece by the Wall Street Journal alleged a slew of misconduct. The report indicated that Theranos had faked results by using conventional testing methods and worse yet, distributed inaccurate test results based on flawed technology to patients. The company dissolved in 2018 amid investigations by various U.S. regulatory bodies. These included sanctions by the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services that limited Holmes' ability to operate labs, an FDA investigation that found it in violation of regulations, and an SEC suit that Holmes settled for $5 billion USD. The current trial is a criminal case for three counts of conspiracy to commit wire fraud and nine counts of wire fraud against Holmes and her former romantic business partner, Ramesh Balwani. The guilty verdict could result up to 20 years in prison. Notably, one of Holmes' claims in her defense is defense that her mental state was impaired due to sexual abuse and emotional manipulation by Baawani, who was de- who has denied these allegations. This may be relevant because the ch- charge of fraud involves intent to deceive, and Holmes may argue that the circumstances diminish her guilt. Actually, there are a lot of portions of this story that could be debatable. So first of all, you can see that there is sort of a commentary on startup culture. There have been debates in the past about the, quote, move fast and break things, mm-hmm. which was a quote attributed to, if I'm not mistaken, Mark Zuckerberg, when his philosophy for building Facebook when it was just a startup was, let's move fast, let's break things, let's fix them, basically bodging things together. And the problem was that they didn't know how big the cracks in the security and the data stuff were until the Cambridge Analytical scandal. Mm-hmm. Cambridge Analytical. <laughs> Cambridge Analytica. Um, so, th- so this can also be used in debates about whether or not the move fast and break things mentality in a lot of startups is good. Theranos actually shows that it's possible to gain large amounts of investment and last for several years, 15 years actually, you know, without proof of market viability or even without the working product. And now all that investment could have been better spent, um, And it was toxic as an investment um, in the end. Conversely, the fact that the heads of the company will still be facing repercussions for their actions shows that, you know, all these things can screw up, but there are still means by which you can hold people accountable. And another thing I think that you can look at is the fact that we do have measures in place that can you know, hold people accountable for risky business decisions. Because there, there was a motion in a tournament, an international tournament 
that I just didn't like, which was about retroactively criminalizing <laughs> or retroactively holding people criminally accountable for irris- quote-unquote irresponsible business decisions. And one of my beefs with, with that is the idea that it's retroactive, mm. but more to the, more pertinently for this story, one of my beefs with that motion is the assumption that we do not have any checks for, you know, gross irresponsible behavior on the part of business people. But also, um, this may also serve as a cautionary tale for investors to look more carefully at the worst possible scams moving forward. And another possible debate is whether or not feminists should celebrate more female CEOs. So granted, this is an extreme example. What you would often see in these kinds of debates about, you know, should we celebrate girl bosses, you know, who are part of an exploitative capitalist system? A lot of people say that, well, those are just extreme examples. But now you can see that clearly the extreme examples are happening as well. Um, and you can see that Holmes like her employees could have created a toxic workplace. You also see how she hurt a lot of women with potentially fatal illnesses who relied on the tests. But for up, if there is an up to this hypothetical debate, it might be more strategic to frame out of this example by saying that while some bad individuals will inevitably hijack it for their own ends, but in general, that's not a reason to regret the social mobility and new opportunities that corporate life can offer women because of people who paved the way. Yeah, so in debates, we like to talk about the vast majority of instances, but in real life, extreme moments like this do happen, as Kyle mentioned, and they impact the world to the point that they should also inform how we think about issues. From a business perspective, it's actually pretty embarrassing how long-lived and how large Theranos became before its misdeeds were caught. So that means our shiny, optimistic view of startup culture and the deregulated environment that comes with it should actually be reevaluated if you're not evaluating it already. From a feminist perspective, this is a massive setback for equality in the workplace. Feminists may want to consider this a cautionary tale to be careful about idolizing people, whether as an individual or as a movement, especially those with a lot of power and who cultivate a very specific image to be seen by the public. So as we already see with this individual, they might be a girl boss, but we should also look at the methods of that particular girl boss before we start cheering on them and making hashtags to celebrate their kind of leadership, you know? Yeah. So beware of girl bosses who also gaslight and, and gatekeep. But anyway, our next story is about Afghanistan's refugee crisis. To give an update on Afghanistan, this week showed that the next question before the world is, what looks like an intense refugee crisis? According to the New York Times, the figure was at around 30,000 Afghans fleeing the country per week, and the Taliban has done little, if anything, to assuage the situation. The situation on the ground is actually very confusing. Like, female workers aren't sure whether they were supposed to show up for work the next day. This is compounded by a reminder that extremism was all too alive in the country because he had an ISIS affiliate claiming responsibility for a bombing of the Kabul International Airport that killed almost 200 people. So all in all, many Afghans are afraid and many have even sold their property in the country indicating that the refugee crisis might be a long-term problem because if you sell all your property, that just means that you're going to move or you're going to try to move away. So most countries have been cautious in their approach because this is not the first 
this isn't even the first refugee crisis from the past decade, right? So a lot of countries have been cautious in their approach. You have two countries receiving the most asylum seekers being Pakistan and Iran. And based on Al Jazeera, they have um, an Afghan refugee population of 1.5 million and 780,000 respectively. That means Pakistan has 1.5 million, Iran has 780,000 refugees being housed there. Both governments have sent mixed and even contradictory messages about what their stance is on all of this. Because on one hand, government officials have said they will not accept more refugees. But on the other hand, facilities have been prepared for an, an inevitable surge. But you can find like a middle ground here as well, I think, where you say, I don't want any more, but we're preparing for the worst anyway. I think this is what they're doing. For those already in the country, the situation isn't much better. Because specifically for Iran, they've made it clear that their presence are, is strictly temporary. Like, you're just here to get medical assistance, uh, to repatriate the refugees when conditions improve. It's not going to be a permanent thing. Um, and I think that y- you have to compare this to this idea about um, the status and the rights of refugees under the UN Convention on the Status of Refugees. Because under that, that um, treaty, you have this concept called the non-refoulement, um, duty to non-refoulement, which basically means that if they came from a very bad place, you have a duty not to deport them back to that really bad place. Um, but anyway... Turkey has similarly increased security on its border with Iran to limit the inflow of refugees. Erdogan um, argues that because they have 4 million refugees already from the Syrian civil war, Turkey has already fulfilled its humanitarian obligations. It's also unfair for the country to just be used as a bottleneck to prevent refugees from reaching Europe anyway. So in real terms, however, this actually means that refugees will be stuck in Iran and eventually be deported back to Afghanistan, which might be a violation of that non-refoulement um, responsibility. In the West, the EU has also been torn because you have a lot of right-wing parties gaining prominence because of the Syrian refugee crisis, now pushing against accepting Afghans as well, and other EU leaders, um, including the current European Commission president, are more moderate on humanitarian and moral grounds and are willing to subsidize countries that resettle refugees. But even so, most parties are working on the assumption that the countries neighboring Afghanistan should shoulder the brunt of the burden. So if you're going to apply this in debates, I guess the most direct application is in policy debates about how different countries should respond to this crisis. Is it justified, for example, for Iran and Pakistan to reject refugees if it believes catering to them beyond its means is going to be difficult? And even if it means they will have to turn back these people to a worse fate back home. There's also a question of logistics. If Iran and Pakistan accepted everyone without question, what if their infrastructure collapses and everyone is still worse off? Still, the moral imperative of helping refugees is quite strong. As Kyle mentioned, there seems to be a principal obligation to do this. You can also ask if the West should accept more refugees or simply subsidize countries that are willing to resettle them. While some kind of support seems intuitively just, this may sting 
particularly for the U.S., whose entire point in leaving Afghanistan was not having its resources tied up with expensive, time-consuming, nation-building projects. Even if Joe Biden technically says this is not for nation-building, right? But still, money is going to be spent whether they stay or whether they leave and end up subsidizing the countries that are willing to accept refugees. This can also be seen in a recent motion about whether or not countries should recognize the Taliban as a legitimate Afghan government. This was actually a motion in Magitin Cup. I'm not sure what what round was it? Like, semis? I think so, yeah. Yes. I, I think it was open semis. Yeah, open semis. And on the other hand, a stable government may be the only way to stop the bleeding, but many refugees may yet be unwilling to return to Taliban rule. So there's a lot of debatable topics here, a lot of lessons to be learned, not just in this crisis, but literally all other crises that have happened in the past decade. It seems that refugee status is not improving for anyone. The situation for people who are basically fleeing from their homes seems to follow a very similar pattern and it's kind of upsetting that we haven't learned anything from these things yeah what i can see here is that we have sort of forgotten the reason why we have a convention for refugees which is the idea that this isn't the responsibility of any single nation it's the responsibility of all nations which is why personally i'm in favor of just letting people subsidize countries with the capacity to house refugees. Mm. Because I, I feel like it's re, I do agree with some of the more conservative people where you're like, it's not our responsibility, but you do have a responsibility. Siguro your responsibility isn't to house them if you can't do that, but you still have a responsibility. And that might be in the form of subsidizing people who can't. Yeah. But given how messy the situation is, something has to be done. And that's the thing that everyone should be able to agree on. Given the limited capacities of each country, the solution should seems to be to require at least, at the very least, a lot of international cooperation and support. And that might not be forthcoming. But it seems that without this, countries will keep trying to pass the burden of the crisis to each other, as I've already mentioned. And... Um, Miggy, who wrote this episode for us, um, wanted us to mention this particular quote from the HBO series Chernobyl, which says, you'll do it because it must be done. You'll do it because nobody else can. And if you don't, millions will die. If you tell me that's not enough, I won't believe you. Yeah, so as I mentioned, it seems to follow a similar pattern. We've seen things like this happen in the past. It seems that international obligations will always stay. And it's just a question of what they're going to do this time. Our next story is about Joe Biden and the Naftali Bennett meeting. Last week, Joe Biden met with the Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett in Washington, D.C. It is widely perceived as a reset in Israeli-U.S. relations under a more moderate prime minister after the ouster of Netanyahu. Additionally, one could argue that the timing is strategic for Bennett because of Afghanistan, a time to emphasize U.S.-Israel special relationships amidst all the criticism. From the Israeli perspective, it was important to ensure that the U.S. did not rejoin the Iranian nuclear agreement in order to prevent its rival from gaining economic leverage or the capacity to build a bomb if sanctions are lifted. 
Biden conversely wanted to ensure the Palestinian situation does not escalate to a more high-profile violence. The material conditions of the Palestinians improved and that the U.S. stance in favor of the two-state solution was reiterated. Biden also spoke in support of the recent normalization of ties between Israel and other Middle Eastern countries like Jordan and Egypt. Overall, the tone of the meeting was cordial and unified. After all, both parties had an interest in making the current government look strong to minimize any risk of a much more radical Netanyahu return to power. So we've tweeted about this situation actually in the past, and it's pretty interesting seeing how things evolved. If anything, you should take this as a sign that all issues are interconnected, especially international relations. So while this is about Israel and Iran, You can also see how it's amplified because of the situation that is happening in Afghanistan. What makes this meeting interesting is the uniqueness of the Bennett government itself. The current government actually consists of a broad coalition power sharing agreement in order to keep Netanyahu out of office after two years of rapid snap elections and unstable governments. To illustrate just how diverse the coalition is, it includes both an Arab-Israeli party called Ra'am alongside an Israeli right party, which is also called Ramina. Its leadership is also diverse because current Prime Minister Naftali Bennett does not support a two-state solution, while the alternative PM, who will take Bennett's position after two years, does, right? So we've tweeted about this in the past. The power sharing that happened between these parties involved an agreement that Naftali would only take power for two years and then it will shift to the other person to give everyone an equal say and equal chance. This coalition is maintained through each PM having a veto on the other's decisions, right? So this is a a way to ensure that power sharing is justified in the sense and to make sure no one really complains in the long term or the short term, if that's the case. That means that while the coalition is engineered for stability and is much less extreme, it is going to be difficult making significant headway in the peace process as well. Benefits given to Palestinians while material, for example, a $16 billion infrastructure package in majority Palestinian villages was given in exchange for Ra'am's participation in the coalition, they kind of stop short of a central question of Palestinian statehood. Yeah, so the first potential debate here is how much pressure the U.S. should apply when uh, attempting to extract concessions from the pal- on the Palestinian issue. As much as the current coalition portrays itself as moderate, status quo for Palestinians is still very much intolerable. If you recall, the Human Rights Watch issued a report last April saying that the Israeli occupation was tantamount to apartheid based on highly racially discriminatory practices against Palestinians. While, to be fair, this was under Netanyahu's government, not Bennett's government, mm-hmm. Many policies haven't been reversed, even if there is a clear opportunity to do so now. And redress for past injustices like um, evicting Palestinian homeowners, not, most of these have yet to be given. A moderate government may pose a new opportunity, but the question now is, will we take this opportunity? If you rock the boat too much, you risk giving Netanyahu an opening to steal dissatisfied coalition members. So it's always a tight, you know, a tightrope. That you have to walk, right? Another possible topic is tactical changes by the Palestinians themselves in response to this new government. Because it might look promising to re-enter negotiations with Israel, but there have been false starts and unsatisfactory compromise solutions before. 
from the Palestinian perspective, okay? So you have the Oslo Accords as an example, giving Israel a lot of security control over the West Bank, but that didn't seem to change things in the long run. Um, and on the contrary, a more militant stance may not be effective when Israel can more readily count on the United States' support, especially when they're trying to show a united front against their common enemy in Iran, which has just elected, as we've mentioned in the previous weeks, a hardline anti-Western president. Yeah, so what we can see from this particular situation is that the new government definitely shows promise compared to Netanyahu. That's not any more debatable, in my opinion. But there's also going to be a lot of constraints, given the fact that compromise between varying parties is going to be difficult, regardless of the situation. So we might be seeing a little bit of ASEAN action here, where veto powers... Um, well, ASEAN doesn't have veto. But basically, the agreements kind of are slowed down because of the fact that you want to reach compromise and you want everyone to agree on a certain thing. It's just that there's veto power now between these two prime ministers... Well, they're not both prime ministers, but the future prime minister and the current prime minister. And that might be an issue in the long term and the short term as well. So cautionary optimism is a good tone to have. So while we are optimistic, we still should be cautious, especially for what it means for the Palestinians who will have to live under this rule. Yeah. Our next story is about the Philippine government's pandemic funds. So just a quick recap from past week's. Several weeks ago, the Commission on Audit, or the COA, revealed that at least 67 billion pesos in funds for the health sector were underutilized. So facing these allegations of corruption, which we've also made on the show, Nina. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> facing these allegations, Duterte defended Duque and the Department of Health, saying that it was probably just a lapse in paperwork and attacked the COA for portraying administration officials negatively, which, by the way... It didn't do. It, it just, just it just released the report. It right? just released the report. It didn't even advertise. Hey, look, there's a report. It just did so for transparency reasons. And then everyone else picked up on it. So it's not really Koa's fault, right? And they it's just also, did their job. Yeah, it's literally their constitutional duty to do that. Yeah. Um. And anyway, Duterte refused to fire Duque, which who is the health secretary. The Koa clarified that while the DOH should still have done better. On its own, this was not proof of corruption, but it got worse and subsequent events may show the need for further investigation. Because the first event that, you know, shows how worse things got is a closer look at a company called Farmily Pharmaceuticals. And Farmily Pharmaceuticals it was a recipient of many government deals last year. First of all, it was a newly registered company, and it had the most, if not all, of its shares through deals with the Philippine government. Uh, not shares, all of its sales mm. um, with the Philippine government. Uh, so most of its business is by transacting with the government. A non-financial concern is the composition of this company, because Rappler reported that through a network of dictatorships in companies, formerly had ties to Michael Yang, and Michael Yang is one of Duterte's former economic advisors. It was also reported that some of these executives were wanted in Taiwan for financial crimes, further calling to question the value of those deals. Another issue was the alleged overpricing when making purchases of face masks and shields. The unit price of a face shield went as high as 120 pesos per piece, even though the COA noted that the suggested retail price of those shields was at most 50 pesos. So it's more than 100 peso, uh, on more than 100% of an increase. And procedurally, this was also unauthorized because uh, there was a lack of a memorandum of, of agreement, which is basically 
an agreement. <laughs> yeah, it's like the contract between like two parties, right? Like, yeah. You're gonna give me this, I'm gonna give you this. This is proof that we're going to do this and it's a way to keep things transparent. Yeah, so that and as well as other documents, there was like an absence of that so there's no transparency before cash was transferred to the Department of Budget and Management's procurement service. But ironically, Duterte would also invoke the COA to audit the Philippine Red Cross over allegations that their funds were used by Dick Gordon's political campaigns. But it's worth noting that number one, Senator Gordon is the chair of the Blue Ribbon Committee that investigated the administration's tie with formally, and this may be an act of political retribution. But secondly, <laughs> COA does not have jurisdiction over auditing the Philippine Red Cross because the Red Cross is not a government institution. It's not even a government-owned or controlled corporation. Yeah, what we're seeing here is a lot of scapegoating. Like, it's not new. It's just kind of disappointing but expected. Like, besides that, we all have also seen a lot of government officials refer to the old administration, right? They showed that, look, the prices were also high for Noi Noi's term. But that's not the issue, right? They're trying to make it about the price when really it's about all the connections that are happening between these rich fellows and the politicians that are in power. So the first useful application here is that it calls for a reappraisal of motion about cooperation between the public and private sector. So that's one debatable application we can see here. They're typically seen as the best of both worlds, given that you know there can be government oversight and private financing. But ultimately, this institution or these institutions are at times only as good as the people who comprise them. So that's also prone to a lot of corruption, nepotism, and politicking. So PPPs or public-private partnerships have their pros and cons, right? They're good on paper, but may not always be good in practice. Another note is that they may be useful in motions about tactics for the Philippine opposition. Corruption has been an issue that can topple even previous popular precedents, such as with EDSA 2. So it's worth watching public opinion on the coming days to see if it affects Duterte's popularity and if that weakens something that may be seen by the public as commendable, right? It might weaken the image, it might weaken basically the promises that the administration has made, and this could give opposition groups uh, something to exploit in their messaging. Though I'm not sure how effective that will be personally, we've seen in the past years many attempts to point out corruption, but people are still like basically swallowing all the machismo narratives that are coming out of our president's mouth. So, you know, that that might be something to be optimistic about, but personally, I'm not going to rely on it. <laughs> But we'll see. We'll see. You know, hope is important, especially in the election, which you should be voting in. So it's also worth noting that politicians who had previously supported the president on key issues have begun opposing him now. So basically, what this means is that, for example, Senator Gordon pushed for lowering of the minimum age of criminal responsibility, a key agenda of Duterte, and refused to sign the Senate resolution condemning the state of extrajudicial killings under Duterte. But we've seen that there seems to be a conflict between those two parties now. And this is not the first time Mari Pacquiao has started going against Duterte as well. So we'll just have to see how this issue evolves. Yeah, so sometimes systems are only as good as the politicians who run them. There is definitely something worth investigating here. Perhaps this is a sign that the DOJ should probably launch a probe rather than sit on its butt. <laughs> <laughs> like, not do anything. 
Also, yeah, I agree with you. It's a good time to get registered. By the way, we're entering September, which means it's Christmas season. But more importantly, <laughs> and more pertinently, we only have until September 30 to register to become registered voters for the upcoming election. So if you haven't registered yet, make sure that you do. Um, our next story is about DepEd. Because DepEd is to hold limited face-to-face classes again, the Department of Education has cleared 100 public schools and 20 private schools to hold limited face-to-face classes in the next academic year. DepEd made it clear that the schools were chosen based on areas with low transmission rates and will still include proper hygiene and social distancing. But unlike previous iterations that were not supported by the president, the Department of Education is hoping that this will be approved because of the added endorsement of the president's IATF, or the Interagency Task Force, which you will recall was created specifically to deal with COVID. And it's worth noting that the Philippines is the exception and not the rule here, because the UNICEF has reported that only four other countries have not reopened schools at all, Bangladesh, Venezuela, Kuwait, and Saudi Arabia. Various groups had stressed the importance of face-to-face education. UNICEF cautioned against lost learning, increased dropouts, Practical problems, uh, mental distress, missed vaccinations, and in extreme cases, children would also be more susceptible to child labor or child marriage. The National Economic Development Authority of the Philippines, or NEDA, also voiced concern on the economic effects of this, increasing the educational difference along the lines of economic class due to poor families not having access to stable internet. Even WHO officials have made commentary in favor of reopening schools. Children in schools are not high risk for transmission, they argue, because children are globally a small percentage of cases. Risk can be mitigated through WHO-issued guidance, and online learning, even at its best, is mitigatory in nature and is woven with an inequality for disadvantaged groups like poor and disabled individuals who may not have internet or may not have access to the resources needed to access the internet in the first place. Online learning has also been correlated with physiological and psychological harm, including poor eating and sleeping habits, less physical exercise, anxiety, depression, and self-harm. While it is important to consider localized factors such as transmission rate, in general, school reopenings are recommended. For me as well, there's a interesting article I read just last night about how the lack of face-to-face learning may make it difficult for children to read body language as well as be better at conversation, especially if you're going to be, for example, in front of a screen, social cues are not as apparent, and that's going to be difficult for children to adjust to. But if you move things to -to face-to-face classes, and you have, for example, if we do this in the Philippines, you have not just a face mask, but a face shield, there seems to be also disadvantages to that because of the fact that children will still not be able to read facial expressions or not be able to communicate as effectively as they should at that age. So it's basically like pick your poison. I don't think any situation is ideal for children these days. Um, so it's all about which side has less harms, right? Yeah, I also, I mean, on your, say, like sort of an offshoot to your point, which mm. is that children will find it hard to read body language The reason why, I, I've read this a year ago, the reason why we think that Zoom meetings are so much more tiring than regular meetings is that we spend more of our energy trying to read body language because it's harder to detect on Zoom and on Discord, etc., etc. So that's just something that we also have to take uh, into account. 
but the most direct application for the purposes of debating is whether or not you should make you know this headline a motion in and of itself should DepEd reopen or pilot face-to-face classes most of the gov case would revolve around the WHO data that there are higher harms in associating um children to higher learning than in physical learning and the harms of covid cannot be mitigated but given the WHO data it may be hard to argue opposition here uh it's important that these recommendations are only provisional it means it's not final like it's not out because we there is also a new apparent strain of covid that potentially might be resisting um vaccinations there's also new data the mu um, strain yeah yeah the mu or mu mu i don't think it's mu <laughs> mu uh, maybe mu? mu maybe i don't I know, know how it's pronounced i've just read it on twitter yeah yeah but like it's it sounds weird to say like mu the mu strain but anyway i don't want to make light of that situation because it's quite scary to me maybe this is my coping mechanism but also <laughs> <laughs> anyway <laughs> but but anyway right i think that you can also say that actually the whole notion that children are less likely to you know be harmed by this that might be a flawed assumption because we're basing it off of the fact that children are less likely to get covid but children are also less likely to go outside right and this also means that children are less likely to have been vaccinated at least in our context in the philippines like mm. i like there have been vaccine drives for um The for elderly. for the elderly for healthcare workers for Those people with... with comorbidities but there hasn't been anything for uh, for children yet as far as i know but anyway um another question here is can we actually have the resources and incentives to fully implement the necessary health protocols similarly you can argue that there are country specific problems to reopening schools such as you know local transmission rates and an unusually low vaccination rate those kinds of things uh you can also play the uncertainty of the information the rapid development of variants like what i said another possible motion application is the technocrats versus the democratic rule um during the pandemic because in this case the primary rift is actually between the technocratic or at least we would like to consider them technocratic um in the sense that they're on paper experts we consider them the technocratic executive departments and the elected officials that are representatives of us we the people so it's technocratic rule versus democratic rule that's another angle to hear to to this issue while democratic accountability is a good thing the fear of losing an election cycle may make election officers risk averse even when there is an abundance of scientific proof to the contrary because not being able to do anything is actually much less risky than doing something and failing. Yeah. Because doing something and failing that's a big deal, right? Whereas just not doing anything that is not something that's particularly newsworthy like you don't see headlines going like Nina didn't do anything today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually that's a phenomenon in political science because for example, if you get elected and nothing changes you still have the ability to make promises that things will get better but if you're elected and you do something and fail things will get worse and that's what people will remember even if you promise to make things better people will just say you can't do anything but bring us back to the state before you were elected so nothing really changes and that's not important yeah so there's a lot of 
things to be done here, a lot of opinions to be had here, but listening to scientific and educational consensus above one's own personal fears also takes a certain kind of courage, as we've known. I'm personally also hesitant, despite the scientific data that says that face-to-face classes would be okay, I am still very fearful. And that might be because of the fact that our country is not the best at handling this situation. So the pilot test may not be as dreadful as it might be, especially since it's just a pilot test. It's not going to be implemented permanently because they're still basically testing the waters here, right? But basically, what it means is that we need to trust our government, which is another question to be had. Like, Can we trust our government to even test this kind of face-to-face system? And personally... I think no. But that's, you know, up for debate. I'm not sure what your opinion on this, Kyle, is. Like, would you be okay with face-to-face classes for the little babies? Yeah, I mean, I'm not an expert on this. so I mean, this is just your opinion. Yeah. I mean, if we do have the proper, like, safety precautions in place, and I have an assurance that these will be followed, then 100% on board with that. I actually want it. Like, if I'm just going... My only concern lang is, I, I really want to go back to face-to-face classes. It's just that... But this is not about you, Kyle. You're not going back to face-to-face no, no, classes. No, what, what I'm saying is that <laughs> th- there's so much more that you can learn aside from... Especially if you're a child, there's so much that you can learn... Definitely. ...that cannot necessarily be taught. You know, like what you said, you can't just lecture about body language, right? Yeah. It's something that you have to learn through exposure. And that's the reason why I'm personally in favor of... Um, these kinds of things. Yeah. I, I'm still kind of hesitant though because if we're talking about really young children, then at the beginning of the class, when everyone drops off their kids to school, that's still a large gathering of adults. <laughs> like, have you ever been outside your gate during like dismissal time or during the morning? Like, there's just a lot of people waiting around until the bell rings, right? So I'm afraid that that situation might be a crowd gathering, which may not affect the children, but inevitably will affect the adults anyway. But you know, that's like a super duper extension, like a really far, <laughs> far-flung extension. True, true. But I still think it's something we should consider. Yeah, so for our next stories, we go to the United States. Figuratively, <laughs> not literally, I mean... We can't, I, even we, if we, we want to. And also, I don't want to. Yeah, true. <laughs> and part of the reason why I don't want to is this next story. Oh! Okay. Which is that Texas has successfully re-banned or, or, re-banned or banned abortion. Yeah. So, if you are a debater from any generation, you probably know this case called Roe versus Wade. Mm-hmm. And in Roe versus Wade, the U.S. Supreme Court determined that a woman had a constitutional right to privacy, and that extends to their ability to get an abortion within the first trimester. Um, and for a long, long time, a lot of Supreme Court justices have been saying that this is a dumb decision, not because they don't want women to have rights. I mean, the effect is that women won't have these rights, but that's not the main reason why they don't want this. The main reason why they don't like Roe versus Wade is that it isn't actually found in the constitution. Oh. Like their constitution doesn't like their constitution doesn't say a woman shall have the constitutional right to have an abortion. Well, their right? constitution just, doesn't say a lot of things. Yeah, uh, so they're saying that this is a stretch. This is a stretch. So for a very very long period of time, people have been going like if we should elect Donald Trump 
or another Republican so that we can overturn Roe versus Wade. And indeed, Donald Trump has been saying that we should, you know, <laughs> change that. Um, so what Texas did was they imposed a law that banned abortion. And the reason why this is important is unless you have a new case or controversy, the Supreme Court cannot revisit a previous ruling like Roe versus Wade. So they were basically gambling. Texas was gambling. Now, let's impose a ban on abortion and let's hope that it goes to the United States Supreme Court. And hopefully they will overturn Roe versus Wade. Oh, so, so it's like a it's like a ban in hopes to get a bigger ban in the yeah. future. So what happened was in a five four split with Chief Roberts dissenting, Chief Justice Roberts dissenting, um, the U.S. Supreme Court has decided against stopping a ban on abortion in Texas after six weeks while it hears legal arguments. So there are a few things exceptional about this law. The first is how remarkably early it is. So six weeks. Based on a fetal heartbeat, um, before, uh, is the time before many even know that they are pregnant. So I remember you were telling me before that for a lot of people, they only realize or they only find out after the first three months, which is 12 weeks and not the six weeks that is envisioned by this law. Yeah, my sister found out like two months into her pregnancy. And I think my mom found out like three, three and a half months, which for me is like, how do yeah. you do that? How do you not notice you're pregnant? But, you know, it happens. And for a lot of women, this is a reality since all bodies are different. Yeah, but also it kind of deputizes on citizens rather than its law enforcement for implementation. Uh, and the reason for that is it allows private individuals to sue people who procure or assist in abortion for up to $10,000. So this decision is particularly alarming to pro-choice activists, and it's also alarming to me personally because the court is also projected to hear a case on a Mississippi abortion ban, which would give them the opportunity to overturn the nationwide legalization of abortion. So, formally, okay, Roe versus Wade has not been overturned. Like, it hasn't been touched yet. It hasn't been touched yet, but... While it hears the legal arguments on the Texas abortion ban, um, the U.S. has decided against stopping that law. So in the meantime, that law will still be in effect. So in this decision, again, it was a 5-4 split, the majority opinion by Justices Thomas, Alito, Kavanaugh, Gorsuch, and Coney Barrett um, took great lengths to explain that their decision did not mean that they believed that the ban was constitutional. But rather, they believed that there were procedural questions that precluded them from blocking the law for the time being. It's worth noting that this is not the norm for past bans on abortion, which are usually easily dealt with through the precedent of Roe versus Wade, which legalized the procedure in the United States. Meanwhile, on the minority, you have um, Roberts, Sotomayor, Kagan, and Breyer. They seemed almost livid in their dissents, and a particularly harsh criticism comes from Justice Sotomayor when they said that today the court finally tells the nation that it declined to act because, in short, the state's gambit worked. The state here being uh, Texas. It cannot be the case that a state can evade federal judicial scrutiny by outsourcing the enforcement of unconstitutional laws to its citizenry. And I, I get this because the idea seems to be here that you cannot rule on it, uh, on constitutionality or whatnot, because it's not the police, but rather private individuals who do this. Yeah. And if we're talking about constitutional rights, kasi, uh, if we're talking about the Bill of Rights, a misconception here is that 
one person can violate the you know constitutional rights of another person which is why nung drug war um, we were talking about we should you know the human rights the constitutional rights of the accused of these drug users of these drug lords whatever and people go like but what about what about the, the constitutional rights. rights that are being violated by drug users yeah they think like it's that. an eye for an eye yeah, yeah so the, that's the thing there because the bill of rights affects and regulates how the state can um treat citizens but it cannot regulate how citizens treat other citizens which is why some more conservative justices including the the late justice Kalia was uh, went on record i think it was on 60 minutes they had an interview where they said look private citizens have the right to be racist to other private citizens the only thing that is banned by the bill of rights is for the state to be racist against citizens so yeah, that's the ideological split we're telling here. Uh, we're talking about here. Um, an interesting piece of trivia is that while dissents normally end in we respectfully dissent, um, especially in the United States, two justices had omitted the respectfully, uh, which like it's it's a very small thing, but it it means big things like mga passive aggressive yeah, justices. Well, maybe they're just being efficient. You know how debaters nowadays instead of saying it, proud to propose, they just say propose. propose. <laughs> instead of going like, uh, instead of going like for all these reasons and more, thank you over there. They just go like opening government or affirm. <laughs> I don't know. It's it's a new trend, and I'm not poking fun. I'm not poking fun of it in a way that says I don't approve of it. I just think that it's something that's happening. You know, it's but, interesting. It's interesting. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. Just like the removal of the word respectfully. But reprisal from other branches of government was swift. Like, President Biden condemned it as, quote-unquote, unconstitutional chaos. Speaker Nancy Pelosi plans to introduce legislation legalizing abortion nationwide, which is which they want to call the Women's Health Protection Act, to the House of Representatives when it reconvenes later this month. So historically, um, what... The, the checks and balances system here is that whenever the judiciary does something that, generally speaking, you don't like, um, the Congress has the option of making new legislation to sort of fix that. So one example is um, when a, a, a female worker at Goodyear was saying that for every dollar that my co-worker uh, earns for the same job, I get less than that, mm. even though we started at the same time, etc., etc. And um, they only brought it up years after they first got employed. And when it reached the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court said, well, we cannot act on this. This might be discrimination, but we can't rule on this because of procedural reasons. Because under our current law on discrimination... Like, isn't it five years after discovery of the fact? Or? Not di- not discovery of the fact. It's a few years after the act happened. Oh, that's difficult. Like, yeah. What if you didn't know? Yeah, exactly. That's what happened to her. She oh, didn't know. Dang. So that's the reason why immediately after that, Congress was like, let's enact this new thing that changed that procedural rule. Oh, so that's, that's where the... Yeah, that's happened. what Nancy Pelosi wants to do here. Yeah. So if you see the situation, it obviously says a lot about what abortion might be in the United States. But this also has implications for motions about court packing or adding more justices or even motions about term limits for justices. Because in the past, there was a strong case that even the conservative judges 
or justices moderated their stances as independent judges. For example, in the Apple v. Pepper case in 2019, where Kavanaugh sided with the liberals in allowing antitrust suits to move forward. This was something that was surprising to many, given the fact that Kavanaugh was, you know, he was placed there by Trump, right? Yeah, that was conservative. So yeah. people were expecting the... Very conservative stance. But yeah. it was surprising that they took a liberal stance. So this gave people a lot of hope. But there's also good counterexamples. In, in fact, the overturning of Roe versus Wade was a talking point when Senator McConnell delayed or expedited appointments for justices to make sure they happened during Trump's term. Or term. So this is interesting because, you know, it, it's... You're basically putting your lives in the hands of these justices that may have a preconceived notion of what they want to happen. And then they just manipulate the constitution or their interpretations of law in order to get the outcomes they want. Or you have people like Kavanaugh, which are, is he a textualist or? Textualist. Yung mga, yung mga inapoint ng mga Republicans, usually textualists sila, or originalist, or both. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I guess before we proceed, what's the difference between those two for people who are listening? Uh, originalist, what they believe in is we should read a text and sort of pretend that, you know, like, let's pretend that we are the people who wrote this document, the original intent behind the document. Mm. So, um, there is some unfairness in, in how originalism is portrayed na, we're going to look at um, people based on the perspectives of slave owners like that, but we've had amendments to the U.S. Constitution, so at the very least, you have to take a look at the perspectives of those who originally wrote the amendments. So that's what originalism is, yeah. the original author. Meanwhile, textualist says, I don't really care about what the author believes. Let's just look at what the text is. So there was a case, I found out saying it was last year, um, there was a very big portion of a particular state. I forget yung mga proper nouns, ha? Um, but there was a very big portion of uh, a particular state that was given by the Supreme Court to Native Americans. Um, and the basis for that was an agreement made by the Native Americans and, um, the government mm-hmm. a long, long time ago. Yeah. And, the arguments for that particular state, they were saying that we shouldn't honor this agreement because it was clear that when the agreement was made, they never intended to actually follow through on this. And it was also clear that even the Native Americans, they didn't intend to assert their jurisdiction in this particular way. Mm-hmm. But the Supreme Court justice who wrote the decision, they were also a Trump appointee. They, I, I think it was Gorsuch. What they said was, it doesn't matter what the intent was. What matters is that the plain text of this agreement says that it belongs to the Native Americans. So that was a very big win for the Native American community. And that sort of illustrates the difference between originalism and textualism. Because whereas both um, philosophies are usually used by conservative justices, there are some sometimes when one applies and the other doesn't. There are sometimes when both applies at the same time. Um, yeah, yeah. So it's basically death of the author, <laughs> but for law, right? Yeah, exactly like that. So besides that, this also adds a new dimension to motions about progressive movements using courts versus legislation. 
in achieving their goals. So if you've had debates in the past about this topic, this particular news article or news story can be good matter for this. Because while the citizens' enforcement loophole is being used now for abortion, it could as well be used under his precedent for laws enforcing gun control or allowing people to sue establishments that don't serve LGBT people. Of course, whether or not one adopts that stance is a matter of strategy, um, cause it, in a, in a debate, I mean, cause it does have a certain, when they go low, we go low thing about it, but, um, it could give us a more assured benefit from going to court. On a more pragmatic note, this may be a wake up call that invigorates more pro-choice liberals to show up during the next election, which may be a boon during midterms where Democrats may get complacent when they get control both of the branches of government. Yeah. So I think that, while this particular decision may be regrettable, it also forces us to grapple with this question of whether or not the Democrats should press any nuclear options in the judiciary. One of these supposed nuclear options would just be to expand the Supreme Court, like add more justices there, so that um, so that Biden has an opportunity to appoint people to counterbalance them. But it, it does seem like I mean, like, from a conservative's point of view, the fact that it's not a clear victory for the conservative side in this particular case. It was still 5-4. Uh, you have, um, you have a very conservative Chief Justice Roberts dissenting for this as well. So, this is why it's still interesting for me. Um, and this still kind of shows me that, um, it's sort of debatable, again, the, whether you should expand the, United States Supreme Court. Yeah, we'll just keep you updated on this particular story. I think it's very interesting. So our last story for the day is about Gavin Newsom's um, recall election. So the current governor of California is facing a recall election on September 14 over discontent for his left-wing and COVID-related policies. A recall election is a measure in some U.S. states where votes can have a public official removed and replaced with another candidate with the intent of adding some level of direct democracy as opposed to normal congressional impeachment proceedings. In California, the requirement to jumpstart a recall election is 12% of the votes cast for that office in the past election. Once it is met, A two-part vote follows, a simple majority vote to have the incumbent removed, then a plurality vote for the replacement. So this is important because at the time of writing, there are 46 candidates if Newsom is removed, meaning in all likelihood, a replacement governor will not have the support of the majority of voters. Another reason this matters is that California is considered a solidly democratic state. If Democrats can lose even in California, it does not really bode well for voter turnout in the midterm election. So our past two stories have a lot to do with the midterms in the United States. So voting is a big deal regardless of where you are. And this kind of shows a shift that's taking place in California significantly. So what do people hate about Newsom anyway? The initial movement was very Trumpian and very conservative, and the initial talking points reflected that, right? So the petition cites high taxes, homelessness, preferential treatment for immigrants, etc. A lot of like valid points, but a lot of racist points as well, which we can see like very 
commonly with conservatives. A tipping point, however, was getting caught at a French laundry restaurant not following pandemic protocols for a birthday. So it's like a CNAS, but in America. From that outrage, discussions about poor COVID response became significant. There were various criticisms of Newsom's reopening of the economy, both that it was too soon, while others felt like it was not harsh enough on lockdown violators, and the vaccine rollout also yielded mixed results. So while a policy was prioritizing at-risk zip codes did some good, the other programs such as vaccine lotteries generated publicity that didn't really satisfy voters because they felt like this was not enough, especially since an upstick in cases um, were caused because of the Delta variant, and it hurt his popularity, especially if people suspect lockdown measures may be reinforced. So the question now is, can he actually lose this recall election? There are a few things going against and going for him. So in terms of campaign finance, due to a quirk in California election law, he is allowed to raise much more money than his competitors. And this is debatable in and of itself. Actually, I don't think it's debatable. I think that you shouldn't be allowed to earn more money, raise more money than your competitors in an election. But anyway, due to a loophole, let's call it a loophole, not a quirk, because that's what it is, a loophole in California election law, he's allowed to raise much more money than his competitors. Basically, there are fewer funding caps on ballot measures in the recall vote compared to electing a new candidate. And another indicator is that he's doing well in the polls. He has 52% to keep him versus 43% against. However, the solid blue nature, quote-unquote, of California, again, as you said, becomes a double-edged sword because most voters may be Democrats, but this breeds a complacency that may make them not turn out compared to opponents energized by the recall petition. Mm. So um, the next question is, let's say that he loses the initial vote on whether or not to kick him out. Who will replace him if he loses? The current leader in the polls is Larry Elder, a conservative talk show host with a very extreme political beliefs. So he has called for abolishing the IRS or the Internal Revenue Service. In our case, that would be tantamount to the Bureau of Internal Revenue, mm-hmm. the BIR. They collect taxes, um, <laughs> abolishing um, Roe versus Wade, and has publicly opposed vaccine and mask mandates. Um, and as someone with elements of Trump, uh, suddenly, a traditional blue state has become a dangerous election. And granted, there may be some silver lining to this, yet uh, the apocalyptic vision of Larry Elder being the governor has also been messaging, with an- which anti-recall campaigners can use effectively to mobilize Democrats. So our fear was that maybe because it's a solidly blue state, we're just going to be complacent. The idea that, okay, if you're complacent, we're going to have a Trump light or a Trump Jr. or mini me version of Trump, but not as ugly. Um, you know, I actually am not sure if he's not as ugly. These people tend to be very ugly. Like, <laughs> in my opinion, Mitch McConnell is very ugly. I just think like, if you have shitty opinions, you're automatically ugly. So yeah, it's it's the heart. It's that the heart ugly. that's ugly. Yeah, so maybe this is a way to mobilize Democrats. And th- the idea here is that you should never be complacent. You know, there, there's always work to be done if you want a better future for you and for everyone else in your society. But in terms of debate, the first situation this would be useful is if you needed to prove that there is still political competition in areas where you have a dominant political party. So recall elections are a possible counterweight. In fact, we do have recall elections, but only on the local yeah, local, uh, level. local level and the a local government code. Um, they allow citizens to voice their disapproval and make incumbents nervous, even without a centralized political opposition. Another possible context is 
showing how seismic political change can happen in demographically quote-unquote safe districts like California because of low turnout. Additionally, you can see here how extremist politicians can also fuel their own opposition. So what's interesting about this issue is that, you know, in other circumstances, in normal circumstances, we want to hold people accountable if they fail in their COVID response or if there's something questionable about it. But in this case, there seems to be such a huge trade-off, right? Even if we oust, for example, this individual because they're not doing well, it's not like you're going to get someone who's going to do any better. In fact, you're going to get someone who does something worse. They're going to, like, overturn Roe versus Wade. And they're going to, I don't know, force people not to wear vaccines. Uh, not to wear masks, sorry. And not to get vaccines. Not to wear vaccines. I, I don't know what that means even. Like, can you wear a vaccine? Anyway, so it seems that there is merit in recalling this particular governor, right? There is obviously a lot to be said about their leadership. Like, they can do better. They should not have contravened health protocols. They shouldn't have had that birthday party or have gone to that birthday party. I don't know if it was their party. Doesn't matter, right? They, they shouldn't have done it. But if something as important as women's rights are at stake, then probably we should reconsider this. But of course, that's all debatable, yeah. right? Principle versus pragmatic. Like, do we uphold our beliefs and ask someone who's not doing good and take the risk of a Trumpian? Or do we just let things be in hopes that things get better? But another possible solution for this particular story is, what if we oust this person, see Newsom, let's oust them, but let's not have them get replaced by, by, by Larry Elder, yeah. right? Let, let's have the next best thing. Like, I, I mean, like, I feel as a, if you were a Democrat, it's also not a good look for you to keep if, if, if you say like, yeah, they violated stuff. They're not good, but let's keep them anyway. I think a solution would be, why do we have to make it a false dichotomy? Why do we have to choose between this one rule breaker or this potential demon? <laughs> why can't we have, why, why do we have to settle on the lesser evil, quote unquote? Um, I think a better and more idealistic solution would be to have a better candidate be the replacement for this, um, Newsom fellow. But I feel like that's context specific, right? Because the people who want to oust them in the first place are Trump supporters. So the likelihood of them being replaced by someone democratic is very low, right? So it's either the recall doesn't happen or you're almost assured to get someone from a red party um, taking their place. But anyway, I think that's the end of that issue. Obviously, a lot can still be said and we encourage you, as always, to do your own research as well as internalize a lot of these topics so that in the next tournament, you have something to talk about or something to raise Um and I, I, I kind of like it when people cite debatable in their speeches. Like, I get very flattered if Do I'm observing... Yeah, if when I'm observing a room... Well, mostly when I judge because they're trying to flatter me as the chair, right? But, like, it's still nice to hear. Of course, it doesn't mean you get more points if I'm it your judge. Like, no, it, it doesn't work. It doesn't work, but I, I am flattered knowing that people are listening. So that was quite a jam-packed session, and we hope you got a thing or th- two out of it. Bumawi tayo from last week. Yeah, because um, Makitin Cup was very stressful, and a lot of things needed to be done. But good luck to people as well competing this weekend. I am going to be competing in Women's Open with Charlie. So if you are going to be debating or judging there see you you know and this was kind of matter loading for me as well so that was good (laughs) i don't know if it's gonna be enough but i'll matter load some more the same way everyone has to so that's it for this episode thank you so much for listening we'll see you in the next one bye bye